11 years ago this week, Janie and I were sitting in a conference in Chicago, Illinois, and we got the, the, the dream for this church. Uh, now, 11 years ago, I was in youth ministry, and um, we were in a church that was a traditional church. And, and you know, by, by all appearances, we, we did a good job of reaching traditional church people. And we were in youth ministry, and, and we were doing a decent job of reaching the children of the people who were already in our church. So what that means is we were reaching children, teenagers, of people who were already convinced that Jesus Christ is God's Son, that He died on the cross for our sins, and He rose again the third day. We were, we were doing a decent job of reaching children of the already convinced. But 11 years ago, when Janie and I were sitting in this conference, I, I began to to hear this pastor talk about doing church a different way. And he kept saying, there's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. And then he began to describe a local church that was working right. And, and I remember sitting there looking at Janie, taking notes like crazy. And when we would go home to the, when we would go to the motel at night, we were talking about this. When we were at, at dinner and breakfast and lunch, we would be talking about this going, we've never been in a church that works right. We've never experienced this. Both of us grew up in traditional Baptist churches, and we've never experienced a church working right. We've been in a dysfunctional church all of our lives. And we began to get this dream for doing church right. And so um, it's kind of funny because a few years later we went back to the same conference and we were sitting around a table with people from all over the world. And, and we were the only Americans there at our table in you know, Scandinavia and, and uh, Germany. And, and we just had people from all over. And they, they said, okay, so, so what part of this idea of doing church right have you implemented in your church? And, and I said, well, um, I'm not the senior pastor. I said, we've, we've implemented everything in the youth ministry. By this point, it was, it was about three years later. We, I said, we've done everything in the youth ministry. I said, we've done nothing as, as the overall church. And there's a reason for that. Um, we decided when we were there 11 years ago, we decided we were going to do church for teenagers that were far from God. And so we had our regular Sunday programs and our Wednesday programs, but we decided to, to, to design something on Saturday nights to try to get teenagers to come to church, people who are far from God, no church background, to come to church. And so we, we had no clue how to do church. We'd never seen it done other than at this conference, how to reach people who were far from God. And so we, uh, we decided a couple of test runs. We did it on Thursday night. This was back in... in uh, 98, we did a couple of Thursday night deals where we, we decided, okay, how do, we, how do you get unchurched people to come to church? And so teenagers, because the number one thing, number one knock on Palestine was there's nothing to do for teenagers. So we, we got basketball goals and, and pool tables and ping pong tables, and we brought all this stuff into what we call the fellowship hall. Here we call it a living room. So we, we put this in the fellowship hall, put the basketball goals outside. We said, we got to feed them, so we had free food. We'd get like 80, 90 pizzas, and then we'd make just tons and tons of cheese sauce, and we'd go to the store. Janie would go to the store and buy all of these drinks and, and all of the, the chips, and she would have just a couple of baskets, you know, and she would push out, and, and it was just crazy. And... And the first time we did it on a Saturday night, we taught all of our teenagers what we were trying to do because they had never heard of this idea of reaching people who were far from God. Church to them was where people who already were convinced about Jesus came and, and you, you sat there and you were prim and you were proper and, and you listened and you, know, you sang. These kids could sing all of the hymns. My kids don't even know what hymns are. These kids could sing them all. They could tell you all the Bible stories. They'd been in Sunday school from the time they were born. And so they didn't understand this concept, so we began to teach them. 
And then we scheduled this, this Saturday night deal in, in the fellowship hall, and, and it would seat about 200 people. And we prayed, and, I, and, and it, to say that is an understatement. To say we prayed is an understatement. We prayed for months. I fasted and prayed for a solid week before we ever even approached our church about doing this because this was so radical. And I had, we were going on a staff retreat and I was going to tell my pastor that I wanted to do something just really way out there. And so I, I fasted for a week. The only time in my life I fasted that long. I, I lost 30 pounds in that week as I was praying and, and saying, God, we've got to do something different to reach people. And, uh, then we taught our teenagers and our teenagers would walk around the building praying. They would go to whatever room we were going to be in and they would, Teenagers would be on their faces before God saying, God, please grant us favor in the eyes of our non-Christian friends so that they might come to church. And the first night we did it, we planned on about 200 people. We said, if we get 200 people, that'll be great. When we showed this movie, it was a great movie, and you know, we had loud music, good music, and, and we showed this movie, we had all this free food and all this stuff. When I got up and turned around to make the announcements, it was standing room only. In fact, it was so packed, about 400 teenagers showed up in a place only 200 should have been. Some of them came in the back door. There was a little atrium back at the back. Some of them came in. They could not even stand anywhere. They turned around and left. We were blown away. I was talking to some of the guys in the band. We'd hired a, a band to come in. I was talking to them. They said, man, this is cool. This is, this is how church should be. And so um, the next day was Sunday. We did it on, intentionally on a Saturday night so no old people would be there. Now, I'm not against old people. But understand, when, when our band started playing, lights were falling out of the ceiling. That's what we were talking. And, and we knew that, that some of the old folks in this traditional church, not that old folks are bad, because we got some old folks here, the coolest old folks in the world. None of them would tell you they're old, and, and I'm in way trouble for even mentioning that somebody might be old in this service. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in so much trouble when this service is over. But um, the next day, I, my pastor said, how'd it go? And I started telling him about all this stuff, and he was so excited. He said, that's awesome. What are you going to do next? And I said, well, we can't do it in the fellowship hall anymore. He said, well, where are you going to go? And I said, we need the worship center. And the look on his face completely changed. And he said, you can't do that. I said, what? He said, you can't do that. And I said, explain to me why. And he said, well, that's a lot of teenagers. He said, we'd have to go to deacon's meeting, and anything that went to deacon's meeting, that was just like the death toll. You know, just going to die in deacon's meeting. And I said, I said, <laughs> he was one of them. That's what's really funny. Now, he was for us. He was for us, but, but he was one of them. Um, and I said, you've got to be kidding me. It will die there. And he said, no, man, that's what we've got to do. And, and I, was, I was hacked. So I, I walked off, and I was hacked, and he knew I was hacked, and, and uh, you know, being quite the spiritual giant that I am, um, I was mad. And I went home, and I told him, I can't believe this. We're going to have to do this. And, oh, well. So later that night, I saw him again, and, and I said, help me understand why we've got to go to the deacons. I said, you know the deacons will vote against it. You know they don't want loud music in the church. You know they don't want those people in the church. Why do we have to go to the deacons? And, and he said, that's just the way we, we got to do it. And I said, okay, now we have the See You at the Poll rally. We host that here. There's four to 500 Christian teenagers here once a year in our worship center. You tell me how it's different. And he goes, well, the difference is those are Christian students. These are lost people. 
And in one of those moments, and, and I was totally sarcastic, so God had to take this and, and keep him from firing me. But in one of those moments that it just came out before I thought, I said, God forbid that we should have lost people in our church. I said it like that, and I walked off. I was, I was so mad. And uh, I don't remember if it was that night or if it was the next day. I get a phone call, and this was before, you know, caller ID, so I couldn't prepare. and picked it up, and he said, Doug, I said, Yes, sir. He said, God has convicted me. He said, you're right. If there's ever any place we need to have lost people, it's in our worship center. He said, you can have Saturday nights. And he said, we'll just deal with the fallout. And I, and I said, thank you. Now, it wasn't me that con- convinced him because my attitude was wrong. But he said, I am so tired of God convicting me he said, I don't want you to be right anymore. I want to be right. And, and he said, let's do this. And, and we started this whole ministry on Saturday nights. And we did it on Saturday nights because we knew nobody would be there who would have an attitude about lost people. And see, this is relevant because our church had gotten to the point that they discriminated against those people. You had to dress a certain way and you had to act a certain way. Now, n- there was no written rule. But we would have people come, and if they weren't dressed good enough, they were made to feel not welcome. People standing at the doors welcoming folks in would not even talk to the folks who came if they didn't know them. They would talk to one another and sometimes even forget to open the door. And and so without even realizing it, our church was committing a sin that James talks about. We're looking at the book of James, and James is, is the good news of Jesus in blue jeans. James is about to get in your face. And we're in chapter 2 today, and we're going to look at this problem. This is on your listening guide, this problem that he describes that was, that was rampant in the early church. James chapter 2, verse 1. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim that you have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people more than others? Now, you need to understand something about James. And as you read through your Bible, some of you are reading through this. I'm reading through the book of James every week as we're in this series, um, every time you see brothers, now in, in the original language it just said brothers because women didn't have status, but now we've included because it's anybody who's a follower of Christ, brothers and sisters. Anytime James says, brothers and sisters, get your antenna up or get your defenses up because he's about to blast you. James doesn't hold back any punches, and so he's about to blast them. The problem was favoritism. The problem in the early Christian church, in chapter 2 specifically, that he's dealing with is favoritism, at least in the first half of the chapter. Next week we'll look at the second half of of chapter 2, and and that's a different problem he's talking about. The problem that every church in history has faced is this, connecting what we say we believe with our actions. Now, James would be one of those guys, he he actually started the slogan long before the state of Missouri did. Missouri is the what state? Show me state. That means don't tell me what you believe. Show me what you believe. And and we'll get into that big time next week in the book of James. James is saying, how can you say you believe in Jesus if you discriminate against certain people? And the answer that he's expecting is you can't, exclamation point, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and discriminate against certain types of people. You cannot do that. Now, we'll talk more about what that means in a minute. but, But what he's talking about specifically here... The New English Bible calls this snobbery. Snobbery. Now, you know what that is, don't you? Not that you've ever 
practiced it, but let's say that it's been practiced upon you. You know what it's like when someone is a snob. They are looking down upon you based on appearance, based on knowledge, based on a bunch of things. It means that wherever you are on this journey of life, and and I like to think of the journey of life as like climbing a mountain. I've climbed a bunch of mountains. I like climbing mountains. What we do in this journey called life is we are on this journey up the mountain. Snobbery is I stop wherever I am on the mountain, not at the top. I stop wherever I am and I look down at the poor slobs beneath me. You're not as far as me. (laughs) Sucker. Instead of looking at how far I still have to go as a Christian, as a human being, as a father, as a husband... Instead of looking at how far I've got to go, I look at others. And see, this is, this is the comparison. We like to say, well, I'm not as bad as... And you find somebody lower than you in your eyes. But the comparison is with Jesus Christ. Anytime you start comparing yourself to Christ, you shut up about other people. Because we're not as good as Christ. But when I start to get snobbish is when I start to compare myself to someone else other than Jesus. So, what are some discriminating factors that we use? What are some areas in which we discriminate? There's several. Appearance. We judge people all the time based on how they look. If you're good looking, you got it made. If you're ugly, look out. Ain't no ugly people here today, except me. Uh, And I don't care. Um, I got the girl. The bald-headed guy gets the girl. That's what I told my kids last night. I don't know. We were watching something, and the bald-headed guy said, the bald-headed guy always gets the girl. <laughs> Many times we, um, we look at other people, and we, we judge them simply by their clothes. I actually heard about an experiment where they sent hitchhikers out beside the road, and they dressed them various ways, from, from the bum to the nicest dressed person. Guess who got picked up more than anyone else? The nicest dressed people. So the moral of this story is, if you're ever going to uh, hitchhike, don't have a chainsaw or, you know, an axe. And if, if you believe one of those commercials, you have to have, is it Bud Light? I don't even know what it is. If you have that, you'll get picked up no matter what you look like. If you want to dress up, great. That's, that's great if you want to dress up. I know people, my wife likes to dress up. We go on cruises. She loves formal night. I only get dressed up on formal nights so that, because we have to take the picture and go to dinner. And then I'm like, let's go change clothes. I hate ties. I hate dress shoes. I hate that stuff. My, my philosophy of getting dressed is if it doesn't itch and it's on top, I wear it. I pull out my drawer, whatever is on top, that's the shirt I wear. And the only reason I, I, I even wear different shirts, because I know some of you would hammer me, you wore that shirt last week. And my wife washes clothes, so it would be clean, but I try to stack them in the closet in the order that I've worn them because I know some of you. You'll be making comments about what I'm wearing. And I wear a t-shirt under this so it doesn't itch. Get over your clothes. Everybody else has. We also discriminate based on race. And I got some really, really bad news for some folks. In the book of Revelation, which is a prophecy of end times, it's a prophecy of what heaven's going to be like, it's a prophecy of, of when Jesus comes back, it's, it's, a, it's a great book, but if you hadn't read the rest of the Bible, don't even bother to read Revelation because it's going to blow your mind. You, you've got to have an understanding of the rest of the Bible to understand the symbolism in, in Revelation. But in chapter 5, there's a description 
of Jesus standing up. And the whole idea is Jesus is going to open up the book of life and he's going to talk about the people who are adopted into God's family. And, and so what's happening is there's a multitude. This scene is there's a multitude of people and they're singing a praise song to Jesus. And, and look what it says in verse 9. Then they sang a new song. You are worthy to receive the scroll, and that's the book of life, and open its seals because you were killed. Talking about Jesus. You were crucified, so you are the only one because you were, died a sinless death and you've been raised from the dead. You're the only one worthy to open up this, this scroll. And then look what it says. Because you were killed. And with your own blood you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. Now this does not say that every person who's ever born will be a, uh, in heaven. What it says is Jesus has provided a way so that anybody of every tribe, nation, language, race has an opportunity to get to heaven. So if you can't stand people of other tribes, nations, races, and languages here on this earth, you're going to hate heaven because they're going to be there. God does not look at... look Read the Old Testament. God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And the whole issue is, is your heart given to God? If your heart is given to God, you are adopted into God's family. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. Heaven's going to be full of every tribe, nation, language, and race. And so there's no room for discrimination in, in God's kingdom. I heard about a black man in the South who went to a church full of bigots, full of racists. And they would not allow him to come in. So he finds the church, finds the pastor later, and he explains to the pastor, he said, you know, they wouldn't let me come in. He said, well, brother, you just need to pray about it. Didn't think anything of it. Three weeks later, the pastor runs into this man out on the street, and he said, did you talk to the Lord about it? And he said, I sure did. And the Lord told me, don't worry about it. I've been trying to get into that church for 20 years, and I still haven't made it. There is no room for discrimination based on race in God's kingdom. Now, let's just fly through these others. Age, achievement, money. We were coming back from Tyler last night, and I'm in my Durango because I needed extra space in my Durango. My Durango's gas hog, and so I don't like to drive it anywhere more than I have to. So when I'm out on the highway in my Durango, I don't care if you're behind me. I don't care. I set it on 60 or 65 because I get better gas mileage that way. And we're coming from, um, from Frankston to Pert, and there's this long line of cars behind us. And I'm just smiling because I'm getting better gas mileage. And then as soon as we get there to Pert, you know, when it goes to four lanes, boom, boom, boom. And I know they were thinking, that must be some old person. They were right. But, I mean, um, you know what I'm saying? If you get behind somebody going slow, don't you assume it's based on age? Y'all just, y'all just not going to admit it because I'm already in trouble. You'll just let me take that. How do you look at people that are older than you or younger than you? What's your attitude towards them? What's your attitude towards people who haven't achieved as much in life as you have? Or maybe towards people who achieve more than you? You know that, that, uh, that nobody ever thinks someone is materialistic who makes the same amount of money they do? They never look at people that are in their same um, income level and they never say, that person's materialistic. They, t- they find somebody who makes twice as much money as they do. And they say, now if I had that much money, yeah? So we have attitudes. We, we discriminate based on a lot of things. And, and money, have you ever thought about why, um, why people discriminate based on money? Why, why do we treat people with money better? Well, we'll talk about that in just a second. 
James, in verses 2 through 4, chapter 2, says this. Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes. All right, let me just kind of set the stage for you here. And let's imagine someone coming into our church dressed in fancy clothes. The idea here, the literal term from the original language is a toga that the, uh, that the Romans would wear when they wanted to be re-elected to Parliament, to, to uh, the Senate. And so what they would do is they would, they would sew jewelry, jewels, onto their togas and they would have these regal robes as they would walk around in society so that they would look important. So someone with these incredibly important clothes, the, 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 uh, what'd you call it last night, Zach? It was, uh, what it, bedazzled. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for playing. Bedazzled. He bedazzled his clothes. And so he walks in and he's bedazzled. Now, look what else it says. Inexpensive jewelry. Now, this translation doesn't do it justice. In the New Testament times, you could actually rent gold jewelry to show how, um, how wealthy you were. So you put on your bedazzled toga, and the literal term, this is really cool, the literal term is gold-fingered. you got a, so much blingdom on your hands that you are considered gold Fingered. So you got Richie Rich, there shall be blingdom in my kingdom. Goldfinger walks into the church. Okay, you, you got that? He's the first guy. And another comes in who is poor and dressed in shabby clothes. All right, this dude has holes in his clothes. He's not showered. He stinks. He hasn't shaved. His hair's messed up. And, and you got a choice to make. D. Wayne, back there at the back, he's, he's welcoming people in. And so, Blingdom dude comes in, and, and B.O. dude comes in. And he's got a choice to make. Where am I going to seat these? Look what it says. If you give special attention to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that you are guided by wrong motives? Okay, here's the deal. He's saying that Richie Rich comes in, and you escort him to the best seat in the house. And then B.O. dude stands in there and you say to him, this is the literal thing. He says, you go stand in the corner or sit under my footstool. Literally, it means you come sit underneath this chair because you're not worthy to be in this place. And I got to keep my eye on you. James says, that's wrong. You're discriminating and you're showing that you don't even know Christ. Now, James doesn't criticize the guy for being wealthy. Don't get that idea. He does not criticize the guy for being wealthy. He criticizes the church people for showing favoritism to the rich guy over the poor guy. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. Now, some of you are going to say, okay, okay, okay. So I have a little attitude based on someone's income level. So what? What's the big deal? It's not a big sin, it's a tiny sin. Remember James said, brothers and sisters? Okay, let's look at at three reasons why favoritism is a big deal. First one is favoritism is not Christian. Faith in God and favoritism are incompatible. The word favoritism is only used four times in the Bible. The actual term favoritism is used four times in the Bible, and every time it is used to talk about God, and it says God does not show favoritism. So if you show favoritism, you are not being a follower of Christ. 
Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality or shows no favoritism. Romans 2, 11 says it just flat out. For God does not show what? If you want to be like Christ, you cannot show favoritism. You think about Jesus throughout His ministry on earth. He was called a friend of sinners, not because he approved of their lifestyle. Jesus got caught up in what they could become. Jesus saw the potential in that person, not their past. Anytime you and I become judges, we look at a person's past, and what we generally do is we ignore our own past. Oh, well, look what they've done. But we don't see our own sin. Jesus saw their future. So when we mess up is when we get caught up on someone's past, not what they can become. If there's one place in the world that we should never play favorites, it's the church. When the local church is working right, we don't show favoritism. We've got to see people as God sees them. Second thing is favoritism is not logical. I love, I love James's whole idea here. He, he fires off four questions in, in rapid succession to show you that it's just not reasonable to show favoritism. Here they are, starting in verse 5. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. There he goes again. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom God promised to those who love him? And then look at this. And yet you insult the poor man. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? The rich, James is saying the rich couldn't care less about you. Why are you trying to impress rich people who don't care about impressing you? In these times, the Romans were the rich people. They were the society. They were the ones exploiting and judging and criticizing and throwing Christians to the lions. He's saying, why are you trying to impress people like that? They don't give a rip about you. Don't try to impress them. Why do we try to impress rich people? It's because we hope we'll get something from them. We hope they'll give us some of their blingdom. I mean, if we're honest, the only reason we suck up to rich people we want some of their stuff. God says, that's not right. Now, there's one big reason. There's a third big reason, and it's in verses 8 and 9. It says, favoritism is not loving. Now, this is a big deal. It's why we started off with this video about the greatest commandment. James 2, 8 and 9 says, Yes, indeed, it is good when you truly obey our Lord's royal command. This is a big deal. Royal command. We're going to come back to that in a second. Found in the Scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you pay special attention to the rich, you are committing a sin, for you are guilty of breaking that law. Why is it called the royal command? The royal law? Because if we followed this one law, we wouldn't need any others. We wouldn't need laws to protect us if we loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. If we spent as much time and interest in our neighbors as we do in ourselves, we wouldn't need all the other laws. That's why it's the royal law. The Bible says how we relate to other people demonstrates what we believe about God. The show me state, that comes from James. What we do in relation to other people tells everyone what we really believe. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we have not seen? The way we relate to one another, especially in the church, is a test 
And when I show favoritism to somebody, I flunk that big fat test. James, is, James tells us at the end of chapter 1, he tells us what pure and undefiled religion is in the sight of God our Father. It's to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves unstained by the world. True religion finds an outlet in serving. Now, if you're, if you're baby, now, and my kids are growing and, and my youngest is eight now, but we had the high chair thing. If my child was always in the high chair eating, always, 24-7, would that cause concern for me? Yes? No. You wouldn't be concerned? You're going to have this enormous child. You will be in the Guinness Book of World Records. There's going to be concern if this child just gets fat. There ought to be just as much concern in the church when people sit and they don't serve. You will not grow to be the person God wants you to be sitting on your butt. It's great that you want to be in church. Love that. But there are people back in the back. If you're able to sit in here without distraction of your children, that means someone is sacrificing their corporate worship time today so that they can be back there serving your children. You want to be like Christ? Serve. And, you know, my children serve once... I've got two that are in, in worship. My children serve once a month for one hour back in the children's area. And in the last few weeks, months, they've actually had to fill in for adults who, who didn't think service was that big a deal. They didn't think it was a big enough deal to show up. And so the workers come frantically in. You'll see sometimes people will come in and they'll say, we need help, and we'll pull people out. My kids have done that. Because we believe service is that big a deal. And, and when, you, when you decide you want to grow up spiritually, when you want to quit being immature spiritually, you serve. If all you do is sit, the only person you love is you. And we're not, trying, we're not talking about, oh my goodness, one hour a month? You waste that. You'll waste an hour today. Don't give me this trash about you don't have time or energy. How selfish are you? One hour a month. And really, our biggest need right now is in the first through fifth grade. We'll have 30 to, to 40 children back there. And, and we love that age, and they're doing a great job with them. But we need people who will serve. And if all you want to do is sit... No offense, but I've got a list of churches that, that would be happy to have you. And we're not on that list. God condemns favoritism, but He also condemns laziness. Now, James realized that some people would just shrug their shoulders and say, my sin is a little bitty sin. Yeah, I have this vice where I judge other people, but it's such a small sin. Hold on to your hat. James 2.10 says, And the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. So if you murder someone, you have broken the entire law, even if you do not commit adultery. Okay, he's talking about being unloving here, and here's how he does it. Let's say I come to your house, and you're married, and I say, Man, I respect you, I love you, and the way I'm going to demonstrate my love for you is, I'm not going to commit adultery with your wife. You're just going to go, thank you. You're the best pastor ever. But I say, but don't you ever cross me. If you cross me, I'll kill you. 
You going to thank me for that? <laughs> thank you for not killing me. No, that's ridiculous. That's the illustration that James uses. Just because you don't murder and you commit adultery, you are just as guilty of breaking the law as someone who does commit adultery or someone who lies or someone who commits favoritism or someone who gossips. One law says you are guilty of sin. You break one law, you're a lawbreaker, you are worthy of hell, and the only way you get to heaven is to have Jesus Christ pay for the price of your sins. And the only way we have a church that works right is when the people inside begin to love one another the way Christ loves us. And see, here's the deal. The point is you don't get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible you're going to obey and which parts you aren't. This is not Ryan's Steakhouse where you get to go and choose from the buffet what looks good to you. You take it all or you leave it all. Those are the options that God gives you. So don't look down at others and say, well, I'm no adulterer, I'm no murderer, so I'm not that bad. Compare yourself to Jesus and say, am I as loving as Jesus? Am I, am I a servant like Jesus? Do I dispense mercy like Jesus? And see how far you still have to go up the mountain. And then you look at others through His eyes. You begin to see people like God sees them. And it changes your attitude. And it changes your actions toward them. Now, let me say this. Loving someone like Christ loves them does not mean that you have to agree with everything they do. There's some real clear stuff in Scripture. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but He was not a sinner. Jesus loved people, but He told the woman caught in adultery, don't sin anymore. So you don't have to approve of a lifestyle in order to love and accept someone. And in fact, let me, let's go through James 2, 12 and 13. 12 and 13, and then I'm going to give you three things how you can demonstrate love to other people. So whenever you speak or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law of love that set you free. This is a big deal. If you're a follower of Christ, the chains that kept you um, tied to your sin, to your past, have been cut free. Now look what he says. For there will be no mercy for you if you have not been merciful to others. But if you have been merciful, then God's mercy toward you will win out over His judgment against you. Love treats people with mercy. Love gives people what they need, not necessarily what they deserve. And if you're merciful to others, God says He will pour out His mercy on you. But if you're not merciful to others, God won't be merciful to you. That's kind of scary. Well, how do you show mercy? How do you treat people right? Because we're talking about this these next few weeks. Right now, you've got to make up your mind. Are you going to be an all-out Christian or are you going to be a part-time Christian? If you're a part-time Christian, the Bible says you're pretty worthless. If you're going to be an all-out Christian, then how do you treat people right? Three things. Number one is accept everyone. Accept everyone. And again, I can't say this enough. There is a big difference between acceptance and approval. We'll accept anyone here. We were condemned one time because we love homosexuals. And, and I had someone say, I'll never come back to that church because you let homosexuals come in that church. And the real irony is the guy was committing adultery. And he's condemning our church because we're loving everybody. And I thought, you know, that's just, that's just pretty interesting that, that I'll overlook my sin of adultery, but I won't overlook the fact that you're loving people far from God. That's just not consistent. 
And so if you're going to live that inconsistently, honestly, don't come. You're not going to keep us from doing what God tells us to do. This person may be doing something totally contrary to the Word of God, but behavior modification is not my job. When, when I finally figured this out, I was sitting in this church in Chicago, and I heard the pastor say that because he started a sailing group with all non-Christians. He's the pastor of a church that runs about 30,000 people in Chicago, and everybody throughout the, the nation that, that's any type of Christian um, organization knows about his church. He starts a sailing, the, the, the sailboat races, you know, like the... He gets all non-Christians. And he said the first time that they came to the boat, everybody that he's racing against knows that he's this big church pastor. And he said they come with cases of beer and, and they're saluting the other uh, boats as they're coming up and they're saying what they're going to do to them and they're talking about their moms and their wives and their sisters and they're telling these nasty jokes. And he said one of them, you know, he told this joke and, and he said, it was funny, but I couldn't laugh. Because I was a Christian. And so he says, as you're coming up to the starting line, that's like the worst time. You're talking trash on your, on your other racing competitors. And he says, what have I gotten myself into, God? And the Holy Spirit whispered to him and said, I never told you to change these men. I told you to love them. If you'll love them, I'll change them. One guy took him seven years. And on Christmas Eve, a few years back, he walks up to this pastor at a, at a little celebration they were having after the Christmas Eve service. And he said, well, I did it. I said, you did what? I accepted Christ. The pastor almost passed out. Okay, our church is built on this idea that I'm not responsible for your behavior. And we've been hammered about, oh, they'll let anyone in that church. Yes, we will. We'll let anyone in this church and we will love them and we'll let God change them. Now, you may not be in a place of leadership because we can't trust your judgment. I mean, come on. You're not going to snort coke and go back and work with kids. We have law enforcement that come here. You try to do that, we will arrest you. We'll still love you and I'll come visit you in jail. I mean, does this make sense? We'll love anybody that walks in the door. And we believe the blood of Jesus paid the price for any sin. And I believe that I'm the biggest sinner in the room. And the only reason I have the right to sit up here is because my sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm no different than anyone here And when we catch that as a church, you'll not be able to keep people away. I run into people all the time and say, I ain't coming to church. I've done that before. And they've been burned. We want to be the church for them. So we're going to accept everyone. Appreciate everyone is the second thing. This goes further than acceptance. This is where you actually look for the good in someone instead of focusing on the trash in their life. You look for the good in someone. And you tell them so. Now, <laughs> this is not just finding something you can accept about them. It's actually finding something that you can, you know, appreciate. And, and, and it may require a little creativity with some people. 
You may have to look harder to appreciate something about some people. But a weird thing is going to happen. You start focusing on the good qualities and you start pouring out mercy on them. God starts pouring out mercy on you and your capacity to love grows. I think I I shared with you a long time ago. um, I grew up in one of those churches where there was rules and regulations and I grew up in a home where there's rules and regulations and... um, and I remember when I became a youth minister at the age of 19, man, everything was black and white. Everything was, you do this or you're going to hell and, you know, you do this, you do this. And and I remember this big issue of abortion. Now, you have to understand, this was 20 years ago. Not quite 20 years ago, about 17 years ago. And I remember thinking, I I can't, I cannot have someone in my youth group who has an abortion. Can't do it. I wasn't there two months until this pretty little blonde freshman in high school. And I didn't I didn't know about it until afterwards. She had an abortion. And she came and she was sitting in youth group and she was just I didn't know it at the time. She was just hurting. Bitter. I was like, man, I don't know what in the world I can do. And I started praying for her, and I started reaching out to her. And one day her older sister, who was my age, began telling me her story. And she said, she loves you. Why? She said, because you're kind to her. And she tells me the story. And and I remember going home to to my apartment. I was in college at the time, and, and I just, I was amazed that not only that this girl, that, that somehow I had been able to reach out to her, but that she had responded to love, not to judgment. And God increased my love for that young girl and her family. And I prayed for her, and she made a bunch of dumb decisions after that. It's like the biggest idiot boy in the school was who she would date. And, and I would just be brokenhearted. And, and I don't even know where she is today. But I can tell you that as you pour out mercy, God gives you mercy and your heart expands towards people that you didn't think you could love. It's because you see them like God sees them and you see their their future, not their past. So you accept everyone, you appreciate everyone, and then you affirm everyone. We're just not going to get into um, dragging your past in front of the church. And we're not going to put up with anybody else doing it either. If you get serious about wanting to grow in Christ, then, then we want you to, we'll help you any way we can. And so what we want is we want people um, who when others stumble, they don't criticize. We want people who sympathize. We want people to be encouragers, not complainers. Because obviously it takes no size to criticize. I heard that a long time ago. I thought that was the dumbest thing ever and it stuck with me. Small people can criticize. Mature people love. And, and you see, the, the church that accepts people, that appreciates people and affirms people, that's the church God blesses. And the gates of hell will not be able to stop a church like that. 
You think about the potential of our church in Anderson County and surrounding counties, driving from other counties. You think about the potential of this church if we become the church that no, that's known as the one who um, accepts, appreciates, and affirms others. It'll it'll rock this part of the country. And see, here's the deal: everybody here has plays a part in in the atmosphere of our church. Everybody here is either positive or negative about our church. And so what I want you to do, when you come every week, I want you to ask yourself this question. Would anybody come back to this church because of me? If the answer is no, you've got to change. If you're not doing jack to help people come back to the church, you've got to change or you've got to leave. Because this is this important. We don't come here every week. I don't spend hours on sermons. We don't have people spend hours to get ready for children's area and band practice. We don't do this because we don't have anything better to do. This is what we've given our lives to, and this is the best thing we can do for now and for eternity. So we're going to give it our all, as long as I still have breath. And I believe God has called you to be a part of it. So take your, uh, your registration cards, if you would. Fill those out. We have two baskets at the back. One is for our registration cards. Yeah, just testing you. The other one is our joy basket. God loves a cheerful giver, and that's where we ask all of our regular attenders and our church members to give. Um, it takes money to run the church, but if you're a guest, we never ask for a dime of your money. This is our gift to you. Now, on the back of your registration card... I want to ask you a couple of questions, and these are yes or no questions, and I'm, I'm the only one that will see these. But I'm going to ask you right now to make two choices, yes or no. And be honest. Don't lie to me because it's not like I'm not going to figure this out in the weeks to come. But number one is, here's the first question. Will you make a choice right now to treat people right? That's a yes or no question. If you've got to think about it, just put no because you're not going to, you're not going to do it. Will you make a choice right now to treat people right? Regardless of race, religion, their past, their, their monetary status, their achievements in life, yes or no? And then the second question is this. Will you choose to serve in this church? Right now, make a choice. Yes or no? And be honest. If you don't, you'll hear more sermons like this. I'll keep preaching them until everybody's serving. Because God can't trust us if we're not willing to sacrifice. We're not like Christ. And how big a stinking sacrifice is one hour a month? Come on. 